Uh, one of my favorite books is uh, by a guy named Rodney Clapp. It's a book called Border Crossings, Christian Trespasses um, into Popular Culture. Basically, a collection of essays that he's done interacting with different uh, aspects of popular culture. And I want to start out uh, tonight with one of, the, uh, one of the quotes from that book. He says this, A noted Western philosopher introduced to the world in 1926 was one day sitting on a log when he heard a buzzing sound. He was puzzled and fell to pondering. As his leading chronicler remembers the event, the philosopher reasoned along the following lines. If there's a buzzing noise, somebody's making a buzzing noise. The only reason for making a buzzing noise that I know of is because you are a bee. Then he thought another long time and said, the only reason for being a bee that I know of is making honey. And then he got up and said, and the only reason for making honey is so I can eat it. Now, even though this philosopher carries the strange title of Winnie the Pooh, and even though his work is mostly appreciated by children, this bit of reflection deserves our serious attention. After all, it resembles the way the American church is more and more thinking about God and discipleship. The incident shows Pooh to be a pragmatic individualist. He cannot imagine the bees possessing an existence and purpose apart from his own use and interest. The Pooh is the quintessential consumer, entirely practical and entirely self-centered. The only reason for being a bee is to make honey, and the only reason for making honey is so I can eat it. American Christians largely envision the church as a spiritual supermarket. We choose churches on the basis of whether or not they, quote, meet my needs. We move to a new community and describe our search for a place of worship as church shopping. Recently, I talked with a professor at an elite evangelical college. He brought up some problems at his church and then sighed, ah, well, most churches only have a shelf life of about three years anyway. All of this is poo-speak, plain and simple. Writing and editing in the evangelical world for over 15 years, I have seen our language increasingly forced away from the language of the Bible and toward the language of consumerism. This from an excellent essay entitled The Sin of Winnie the Pooh that you should read. It's a great article. And it really is about this, this issue of consumerism. And the story that we're going to look at tonight that Jesus tells, the parable we're going to look at tonight, gets at this issue. Does God exist as a means to an end? Does he exist for our benefit? Does he owe us because we're so kind and gracious to give him a break and invite him into our lives and allow him, you know, maybe at least a few minutes of thought each day? What is what is wrong with the, with the church and with most Christians is what, is what um, Jesus is getting at in this story. Um, let's read this story. It's in Luke chapter 17. If you didn't realize, on the back of your announcement sheet, I put that quote that I just read, and you also have the passage. So if you don't have a Bible, there's a couple passages we're going to look at. And we're going to start with Luke 17, a little story from Luke 17. Start at verse 7 if you're reading the Bible. Everybody ready? Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, 
prepare my supper. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that this is a strange little story. It seems harsh. It seems strange that Jesus would seem to give his blessing to servants who are taken advantage of. We pray that you'd help us to understand how this is a picture of the kingdom. And thus, you would show us, we pray, who we are and who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting little story. It's a story that upsets a lot of modern people, doesn't it? Now, it's always interesting that people are offended by different things in the Bible, and it has a lot to do with your cultural background and your presuppositions. I think I've tried to make that point to you before. Um, People from the Middle Eastern culture that this parable was told to would not at all be offended the way you are. And you can tell that from the way that Jesus tells the story. He counts on a particular understanding and assumption. He raises, really, a ridiculous situation in the first century. The idea that if you have a servant, and he's done working, and he comes in, um, it would be ludicrous, unthinkable, right? Inconceivable, as they say in The Princess Bride, right? That that this master would say to the servant, oh, sit down and, and eat. And uh, no, nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. Jesus expects the answer to his first, first little question, uniform answer from everybody that heard this parable, say, no, nobody would do that. That's ridiculous. We read the parable, though. On the other hand, we say, well, good night. Guy's been working all day, and he comes inside, and the master says, okay, make me some dinner. And after I'm done, then maybe you can eat something. And it just seems strange, doesn't it? This is a parable that offends different people in different ways. It's interesting. One of the things I think that is hard for us to get our hearts and our minds around, if we would try to understand what Christianity is about, is this idea that we have a master, that we have a Lord. I mean, Jesus does not shrink back from using this parable and this story to teach us about our fundamental relationship with God. You see that, right? At the end, verse 10, so you also, he says, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And I don't think that he's talking about your servanthood to your earthly employer. He's making a parable. He's saying this What this servant would do is the way you should think of your relationship with God. Which means, first and foremost, that God is Lord. That we have a master. Right? Now, here's here's the thing. It's difficult for us to get into this idea. Right? Um, You know, back in these days... When Jesus told this parable, people understood 
the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, much more than they stood, understood the intimacy, what we call the imminence of God, him being close to us. We've got it sort of exactly the opposite. We've trivialized God and turned him into somebody who exists to do our bidding. You even hear people say things like, well, my God's not like that, <laughs> which if you stop to think about it, it's a really ludicrous thing to say. What, your God? Like you got to make and fashion your own God who is it just the way you want him to be? And you can even say, well, look, the Bible says this. Well, my God's not like that, right? It's, it's crazy. But that's the way we think about it, right? Um, and what's really interesting to think about is in a world and a culture where you really are free, pretty much, to decide what you want to study, to decide what sort of life, career path you want to choose. We think of that as sort of this wonderful thing, and we can't imagine there being any benefit to living in a culture where there are masters and servants. But it's interesting, Kenneth Bailey, who I've used a lot in this parable series, Middle Eastern uh, expert on the parables, and also lived in the Middle East for a good 30, 40 years, did most, his, really his whole career over there, um, says it's what is interesting to think about is there actually are a lot of benefits to this society. The thing that is hard for us to, to understand that is easier for people in the Middle Eastern culture to understand is there's really a sense of security that, that attends to knowing this is my place. You know, it's actually really interesting that people are more plagued by fear and doubt and indecision because an infinite variety of choices are really paralyzing. It's one of the things that I think is important that your college education be a time when you are trying to understand who has God made me to be and the places where God has gifted me and the places where the world has need. How can those two things fit together as I think about vocation, I think about calling and what I'm supposed to do? But, but in this day and age, there, there, there was a sense in which this is what I do, and I don't have to constantly worry about that. And now you may think, well, that's just crazy because we're so, we're so influenced by this idea and this assumption that isn't even ever question our society about whether or not the ultimate good is for us to be free to do whatever we want whenever we want. But Jesus uses this story to say, listen, the fundamental relationship that you have, your relationship with God, looks like this. He's the master, you're the servant. And unless we grapple with that, I don't think we're really going to understand very much about Christianity. I would even contend that you won't understand very much about the gospel if you don't understand this relationship, that God is the Lord and we are his servants. Otherwise, there's no context for the good news of the gospel. This is, I, I've mentioned this point when I was talking about the parable of the great banquet. And I think one of the reasons that so many Christians don't, don't really seem to identify or relate to this idea that the kingdom of God is like being invited to the greatest party you ever knew, the reason they don't think that is because they feel like, of course I'm invited. Wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. God, God, God wouldn't be able to celebrate if I wasn't there, right? And it's, we just trivialize this idea that, no, hey, you were invited to this party. You didn't deserve to be there. And if you don't understand who it is that's invited you, 
it's just not that big a deal when you get the invitation, right? And so it is with this, um, th- this story. Listen to what Ken Bailey says about sort of the, understand some of the cultural context. He says, he says this, in a technological age like ours, with the 40-hour work week, powerful labor unions, and time and a half for overtime, the world of this parable seems not only distant but unfair. But Jesus is building on a well-known and widely accepted patterns of behavior in the Middle East, the master-servant relationship. In its ancient and modern expressions implies acceptance of authority and obedience to that authority. Yet the outsider needs to be sensitive to the security that this classical relationship provides for the servant and the sense of worth and meaning that is deeply felt on the part of a servant who serves a great man. The qualities of meaning, worth, security, and relationship are often tragically missing from the life of the modern worker with his 40-hour work week. I think that's interesting, but I don't want to focus on that too much. Let's, let's keep moving on. I think that the reason this parable is so important is for tonight is because, for a, in a large way, we um, Christians or people who profess to follow Jesus or even those who aren't Christians who are trying to figure out who God is, really all of us, I feel, have trivialized God, right? Um, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, put it helpfully. He said this, we modern people, all of us here in this room, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of man, have as a rule small thoughts of God. We are poles apart from our evangelical forefathers and foremothers at this point. Even when we confess our faith in their words, even when we sing these hymns, the way we think about God is really pretty far from the way some of these older Christians thought about him. Packer says, when you start reading Luther or Jonathan Edwards or George Whitfield, though your doctrine may be theirs, you will soon find yourself wondering whether you have any acquaintance at all with the mighty God who they knew so intimately. Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort that we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress and the reality of God's personal concern for his people, the Bible never loses sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over his creatures. And I will tell you, that's one of the reasons that we sing some of the songs that we sing, is we're trying to sort of fight against the modern impulse to trivialize God and and just sort of think that the relationship that we have with God um, exists merely for our benefit and so that we can feel good. We want to sing songs that are going to help you be a better Christian 10, 20 years from now. You know, it was really moving to me last night at the CD release party, and I know a lot of y'all were able to be there, like to, to stand there. One of the benefits about doing campus ministry for 15 years here at Belmont is to be able to stand on that stage and see people like Sandra and Matthew Smith and India Singa and all these folks, Chris Weigel, all these folks who were my college kids when we did our first Indelible Grace CD 10 years ago. They were my kids, but now they have their own kids who are standing up there singing these hymns. And they, believe me, we had no idea when we made this little CD 
that it would have any kind of impact. We had no idea that we'd still be singing these songs. I had no idea I'd be doing this 15 years later, still doing this sort of thing, 10 years later, really. And, and yet, this is what's, what's so important, that we always are remembering that what we're doing right now has long-term consequences. And that applies even to the, to the things we watch and read and sing. Are we cultivating this understanding that we have a God who is an authority, who is sovereign? It's important. And I'm telling you, we have to fight for that. We have to fight against our own heart, and we have to fight against the culture we live in. Because the culture we live in puts you in the position of being the quintessential consumer all the time. And the thing about consumers is, they've learned this thing. You've learned this thing. The customer is always right. And you ever, ever worked retail? Right? When I worked at Sears every summer during college, the customer is always right. It didn't matter how ridiculous. Like People would go buy camping equipment. They would use it. It would have like dried eggs like all over it. They would bring the stove back, say it didn't work right, and we would take everything back at Sears. The customer is always right. No questions asked. This one you know, lady brought back a bike that was mangled. It had been run over by a truck, and we took it back. The customer is always right. You know, you don't have to live in that culture for very long before you start applying that to the way you relate to God. The customer's always right. And, and you don't have to work very long at very many churches before you begin to realize that there's a lot of people at church that have that attitude. The customer's always right. The church exists to serve me. I want community. Isn't that a commodity that the church dispenses? I'm going to hop around from church to church until I find one that gives it to me. Do you realize how destructive that is? Do you realize why that attitude makes us have no sense of amazement at the gospel? Because we think that God is the, is the great store owner who's always just saying, okay, yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want. The customer's always right. The gospel then has no real context to be amazing. Grace has no context. Do we think that God exists for us? I, I really think that it's worth serious pondering to think about how much the consumer culture has affected us. I'll tell you another aspect of this. We basically define ourselves in this culture by what we've chosen to buy. Even the things that you're wearing tonight are an expression, in some ways, of you trying to say, here's who I am. Right? I, I'm always fascinated by you know, people that shop at thrift stores to kind of get these cool t-shirts and whatnot. And, and yet it's so funny because like, you know, Urban Outfitters can basically like, manufacture t-shirts that look like the kind of t-shirts people go searching around in thrift stores to find. Right? We think that we're building this unique identity, but it really goes deeper than that. Very much one of the subtexts of our culture is the way you define yourself and project to yourself who you are and why you matter and why you're an individual who's not like the mass consumer culture is by buying something to make yourself seem to be different and interesting and unusual. That you had the, the wisdom or the ability to see that this thing is really cool if it's put in the right context. Right? It's another way the consumer... Now, why is that a problem? Well, the Bible says that you are what you are not because you chose to buy it 
but because God chose you. Jesus said flatly out to the disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. So the fundamental fact, the beginning place of the Christian life runs flat up against the culture that squeezes us all the time saying you are what you've chosen to buy. The Bible says no, (laughs) you are what God chose to make you. You are what Jesus chose to redeem by his own blood. Do you see the difference? So this parable comes in and it's like, whoa, wait a second. I don't think of God like this. I don't think of myself as the servant who, you know, goes out and works hard. And then I come in and he says, okay, great. Well, don't pat yourself on the back. Fix me dinner. We just go, wait a second. But here's the point. God has every right to say that. He has every right to say that to us. And unless we understand that, we'll never really understand Christianity very much. Christianity says you live in a kingdom that's ruled by a king. The problem is we're Americans, and we think that you have to throw off the king to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. Okay? So how do you fit those two things together? It's one of the things that I think is so brilliant about Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings is that he can make the image of a king beautiful and can, can, can sort of touch your heart in a way that you realize that I really do long for a king, a king who will be known by having the hands of the healer, And he will bear the sword that was broken that's now been reforged so that he can put to death the enemies to his kingdom. Right? That's what you long for. It's what you were made for. But it's very hard to get in touch with that. Because so much of the world sells us this idea that really your ultimate good is found in being free to do whatever you want to do. To throwing off authority. We throw off authority we don't even know what for. There's no purpose. It's just, I don't want to be under authority. Well, this parable has something very different to say about that. So, we have a master, point one. The second point of this parable is is you have to grapple with this. Do we think that God owes us? Now, there's a couple words in this parable that are a little troubling. I recognize this. The first is in verse 9, where um, Jesus said, Would he thank the servant? And you read this and you go like, well, gosh, it doesn't seem too much to ask to tell the servant, thank you. And, and I think that word translated thanks is probably not the best translation. I think it, it makes the parable overly harsh. The, the, the image there, um, and this is especially picked up by a lot of the Middle Eastern translations throughout the centuries, is the idea um, that, well, it's the word charis, which can be translated thanks, or can be translated as it often is, grace. But in Luke's gospel in particular, it's regularly translated with the sense of reward. In Luke's gospel, this word is regularly translated with the sense of reward. So if you, if you think of it that way, it's saying, would he reward the servant? In other words, give him an extra reward, extra favor, because he did what he was told to do. Do you see? Now that actually fits the context. Would he thank the servant seems strange. Like, why would, why would Jesus be condemning saying thank you to the servant for doing his, his good work? As a matter of fact, you know... Jesus says that one of the things that we can look forward to is well done, you know, my good and faithful servant, right? So it would be strange for him to be condemning thanking servants when he's told us that that's something that we have to look forward to. Uh, But I, I think if you understand the way that this Greek word is used in Luke's gospel and you think of this as um, will he reward his servant, then you get the idea here. What Jesus is saying is, Which of you servants would think that if you do your job, you're going to get a bonus automatically? 
It is really funny when you get like a real job, maybe you work at a company that pays Christmas bonuses. But they're not really bonuses because everybody expects them. And if, you know, the company's in trouble and they need to cancel the Christmas bonuses, you find out that everybody really thought that was part of their wage. It wasn't a Christmas bonus, right? It, but, and that's kind of this thing. Like, you know, the, the, what everybody in this culture would have said is, no, no, he doesn't deserve an extra reward. He doesn't, thus, if you do your job, in other words, you don't obligate the master. Just because you do what you're asked to do does not put the master in your debt. That's, that's what he's saying here, right? There's another word that's, that's helpful, um, and it's this word, uh, supper. The, the, the translated supper, I think it says dinner, right? Uh, or, yeah, actually the NIV uh, yeah, prepare my supper. The, the supper that's being talked here, we know about the specific Greek word. It refers to a meal that happens at 3 p.m. So the picture here is not this guy has worked a 12-hour day in the field. He's starving, but he doesn't get to eat yet. It, it's a 3 p.m. meal. I think that helps. It helps me a little bit to understand. This isn't uh, about harshness. This is just, this is your ordinary job. This is what you do. Part of your job is you Fix the ma- and the master obviously isn't very wealthy because the same servant probably only has one. The same servant has to do uh, both jobs. If you if you had any wealth at all, you'd probably have different servants. And you know, even relatively poor people in the first century Middle Eastern culture had servants. Okay, this isn't just a parable. This is something all the disciples. Several of the disciples had servants. We know this from other places in the gospel. So it, this isn't sort of a strange thing. This is something everybody can relate to. And they realize, um, you know, that obedience does not put the master in the servant's debt. Everybody, everybody here in this parable would have said, of course not. That would have been ridiculous. And I think that he's getting at, Jesus is getting at a problem that all of us have. We believe that God owes us. I got a great Luther quote there, but I'm not going to read it because I want to make sure I cover some other of the stuff. But you can read it later. It's one of my absolute favorites. But here's the idea. Jesus is challenging those who serve God to get some special reward because serving God is our basic duty. And yet here's the thing. We don't even do that. Here's the craziness. We don't even do what we're supposed to do and we still feel God owes us. Come on, honestly, in your heart of hearts, you feel God owes you. And yet, you haven't even done the bare minimum of what you're supposed to do. I always love to mess with students sometimes when they'll say, well, Kevin, I'm really struggling with you know, God's will for my life. I say, well, Paul says in, in Thessalonians to flee sexual immorality. This is God's will for your life. So when you got that down, come back. I'll give you some more. <laughs> right? We just, you know, it's like we're not even doing the basic stuff. And yet we still feel like God owes us. He owes us happiness. He owes us a fulfilling career. He owes us good health. And how do we, how do we know that, that we feel he owes us? Because think of what happens when you don't get those things. You feel not just sad, you feel ripped off. Like you've gotten a raw deal. It's one of the reasons that God uses trials to expose to us what's really going on in our heart. Trials have this way of revealing that you feel like God owes you way more than you thought you did. And you often don't see it. You often don't see it until those things are taken away. And and, and I think we should at least consider that God may be actually loving us well in showing us what's really going on in our hearts. Because I will tell you, one of the barriers to intimacy and to joy 
in the gospel is feeling that God owes you. Grace will never be amazing if you feel you deserve it. And so it's actually a very loving and kind thing for God to send trials to show us the demandingness that's in our hearts so that we could cry out to him for help. Jesus is challenging this, right? And remember, Jesus is telling this parable to people and disciples who don't do what they're supposed to do, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. I don't think that Jesus is teaching this parable that Christians should always be groveling. Now, some of the translations in verse 10 actually say we are useless servants. The NIV says we are unworthy servants. And this is the other word in this parable that's somewhat difficult to translate. Um, It's literally a word that means needy with an ah put before it. You know, like we have moral and then amoral and it changes, flips it. This is a word that is needy with that A in front of it. A needy. So what he's saying is is that we should say um, we are not unworthy servants, but we are a needy servants. In other words, we don't need you to reward us. Again, it's tying into what he said earlier there. We should never think that when we've done our duty, God owes us. Rather, we should say, No, God, we're not needy. In other words, we don't need you to give us special rewards. We don't. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. When you think about Jesus, particularly when you think about the Gospel of Luke. See, Jesus builds this picture here in this parable about how inconceivable it would be for a servant or for the master to serve the servant. But you know what happened in chapter 12? He told another parable. Listen to this. Be dressed, ready for service. This is on your, your, your uh, scripture sheet there. And keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says that, he means pay attention here. He will dress himself to serve. Who? The master. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's he's wanting to say... It's ludicrous and inconceivable that any servant would expect their master to wait on them. But that's what's coming. And then, in Luke 22, Luke's rendering of the Last Supper. Right after, you know, this is going on, right? Right after he says in verse 20, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Four verses later, look at verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus has wrapped a towel around his waist, right? He's washed their feet. He's served them food. And they start arguing about which of them is the greatest. Jesus said to them, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So Jesus sets him up. He's wanting them to understand. In, in John's gospel, it tells a story. It says, wanting to show them the full significance of his love. Or the full extent, some translations say, of his love. He took this towel and wrapped it around him, took a basin, and began to wash their feet. And, and here in Luke's gospel, he, he records this, this part of, this, of, of what happened that night. I am among you as one who serves. So here's the point. Jesus is our servant. But, you know, that doesn't seem like a big deal to people who are trained to believe the customer is always right. And that God exists to do our bidding. And this parable is absolutely essential if you would be flabbergasted by the idea that Jesus would be your servant. And if you're not flabbergasted by that idea, you don't understand Christianity very far at all. Jesus is our master who takes the role of a servant. That's the gospel. And it's a parable like this that reminds us of the context that makes the gospel so remarkable. Who is it that serves us? It's not this weak, pathetic Jesus who's just hoping to recruit some people for his, for his team, Right? He's not this pathetic, impotent Savior knocking at the door of your heart, unable to do anything. I love uh, a guy that I, I used to know who's passed away now. Jack Miller used to tell this great story. He'd say, we have this, this image that Jesus is knocking at the door of our heart, but he can't really do anything unless we open the door. He says, you know, what we don't realize is that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit around back, and he, he goes in the back door. He goes down to the basement. He starts turning up the furnace. And all the while, like we're like pushing furniture up against the, the door, you know, and, 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 and the spirit is like smoking us out. And eventually we just can't stand it anymore. We sort of pull all the furniture away and open the door and then sort of pat ourselves on the back, you know, for accepting Jesus, right? It's a ludicrous picture. Jesus is not impotent or weak or pathetic. With a single finger, he said, he could have called down legions of angels while he hung on a cross. Right? That's why I love that hymn, Who Is This? Who is this that's hanging there bleeding? It's the Lord of creation. And if you don't have the two parts of that paradox together, no wonder your worship and your, your understanding of the gospel will be so anemic. Right? And we tend to go on one side or the other, but the, the heart of the gospel is to hold those two things together. It's perfectly captured in that hymn. Who is this? The Lord of life expires. How does that make any sense? So, so you know, here's, here's, here's where we conclude. The gospel is not very big unless we realize the nature of who God is and who we are. And this parable is a great corrective to that cheap grace. And here's the last thing I'll leave you with. Christians follow a king. If you want to follow Jesus, you follow a king who deserves absolute obedience because of who he is. But he's the king who gave up his glory to rescue his enemies. Do you know why that's important? 
Because when you realize that he's the king who deserves to be obeyed, but then you realize he's the king who gave up his glory to rescue his enemies, that demands more than just obedience. That demands love. And God wanted so much more than obedience. He did everything required to draw forth love from his people. Right? He is the king who demands and deserves to be obeyed. But he's the king who gave up his glory to rescue his enemies. And the only fitting response to that is to love and sing and wonder. Let's pray.